Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them, be, let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Father, we come to you this morning and we pray that you again would be the center of all that we would attempt to do. We pray that Jesus Christ alone will be glorified and that some kind of way through these narratives, these stories of Jonah, we will understand how it affects or what it has to do with us, that we may be all that we should be, that we may learn all that we should learn, through your prophet Jonah. Now the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of this preacher's heart be acceptable to you. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, they all said, Amen. Amen. If you have been with us any length of time, you already know that what we have been doing is we've been in this series of study in the Old Testament, in the Minor Prophet, the book of Jonah. Interesting about the book of Jonah, usually you re remember the, all about the fish or the whale, and if you've been in church or in near church any length of time, there's always that story, the story of Adam and Eve, and the story of David and Goliath. Some kind of way we always remember those stories as kids. Those are the stories that kind of resonate with us. So this morning what I want to do is I want to, I want to do a recap real quickly on where this story began. We started off with the prophet Jonah. He had been given a very clear task, and that task was to simply go to this city called Nineveh and speak to the Ninevites. We already know that the Ninevites were a people that were very wicked and very evil. And that in this huge, huge city, because God says this was a great city, we're told. Great city. 
that some kind of way their evil had reached God. And God said, now enough is enough. Go and tell those people that they need to change. That they need to do something different. Jonah decides that the Ninevites aren't worth it. And he decides to go the other way, and he heads for Tarshish, which is so, so far away. And he doesn't want to hear any more about these Ninevites because everybody knows that the Ninevites are people that aren't worthy of anything but destruction and evil. And so Jonah boards a boat, and you know the story. At one point, the people on the boat realize that Jonah is a liability. They throw him overboard, and then the miracle of a huge fish swallows Jonah, and he's in the well, inside of this well or fish, for three days and three nights. We know that this is all about God. This is not about Jonah. This is about what God is doing. And please get that because this is very, very key. What God is doing, something is far beyond just a fish story and a man being swallowed up by a fish. What God is actually doing is God is actually teaching a very powerful lesson. And I want to make sure that we get this because this is the key piece to this entire series. The whale or this huge fish regurgitates Jonah. And now he's back on dry land again after he cried out to God. We said last time that some of us need to cry out to God. Especially when we're in distress, we need to cry out to God. God is looking for people that that recognize in humility that they need him. Especially when we can't do it ourselves. He cries out to God in that famous chapter 2, and God causes the fish to spit him up, and he's on dry land again, and now God is saying to Jonah, we're going to try you one more time to see if you can get this right. And he tells him the same message. Go and do what I told you to do the first time. Preach to the folks of Nineveh. Three important questions I think is very key with this whole story and, and even for this entire series as we're doing it. And I, I, I began to, I've talked about this before, but I put it down so that you would be able to kind of see where this is going. Where does the Jonah narrative fit in God's dealings with Israel? Because this is a key piece in terms of understanding what was going on there at that time in Jonah's time. And then secondly, where does this narrative fit into the overarching story of the Bible? Where does it fit into the grand narrative, the, 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 the bigger story, the meta-narrative, as we say, something that postmoderns kind of resist? This is a grand story. We believe that as believers, as folk that are lined up with God, we believe that there is the meta-narrative. There's this grand story that's God's story. That's the only story, contrary to what popular belief would have it that there's other stories out there. We believe that this is the story and that invariably we are connected with God's story. And then the last part there, how does this story connect with my story in my life now? When I ask myself about this Jonah narrative and how it fits in God's dealings with Israel, I've come up with three things. If you look at the exclusivity of the culture of that time, they knew that they were God's people. And so the message that Jonah, that God had given Jonah to go and preach to the Nineveh is that 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 attitude that Jonah reflects is an attitude that basically reflects the attitude of the Israelites at that time. And that is, it, it says that 
God, you shouldn't show mercy to these people because they are people that do not show mercy to anyone else. And so why should you have compassion or mercy on a people that do not know anything about compassion or mercy? Wipe those folks out, have nothing to do with them. I don't want to have nothing to do with them. That's the attitude of the Israelites. And then this narrative speaks to the fact that there's an influence that Israel influence for the Gentile salvation that Israel was supposed to have. In other words, Israel was supposed to be a light to these nations. God had adopted them, say, you are my people. And that people were, those people were supposed to go out now and be able to speak to the other people who had pagan gods, multiple gods. The people of Israel were supposed to be a light to the nations that would take out the, take out the message that there is only one true God. Where does the narrative fit in the overarching story of the Bible? If you recall, Paul, the apostle who has written a great deal of the New Testament, speaks about this in Ephesians, and he says that Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ. So what God is doing is God is saying that this is, a, this is kind of a foreshadowing of what I'm going to do. I am going to reach out beyond the people of Israel, beyond those people that are my people, and I'm going to reach out to other folks out there with this message, the gospel message. It is the essence. It is, this, it is, it is the, 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 the key piece. The sin qua non, as they say. It is the essential piece of the gospel message that it moves beyond just one people now. It is a message that is tied into all people because God is concerned about all folks. In Christ, Paul writes later in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. We want to, Israel wants to count everything against Everybody else, oh, they're pagans, they're heathens, they're not worthy. We're the exclusive peace. That's the problem that the Israelites had, especially the Pharisees. Anybody that didn't fit in that nice category of being an Israelite, you were out there, you were, you were considered nothing. And how does this story connect to my story right now? Pastor Ali, what does this mean for me? This story about Jonah, about the fish, and about all this stuff, what does it mean for me? One of the things I think is a key, is a key piece to this in terms of this Jonah story is God is demonstrating part of his character in terms of compassion and mercy. And I believe that what God is doing, he's saying, those people who are naming my name, who claim to be part, my people who have been adopted, not just Israel, Israel but the people that have adopted into me, those individuals now are people that I expect to have the same kind of attitude, the same kind of spirit, the same kind of spirit that's in me, that spirit should be in them as well. Be merciful, for your heavenly Father is merciful, Luke says in 6.36. Mercy is a key component of the character of God. In that, it, it is the key piece of what God is about. God demonstrated mercy for us, not judgment, so that we would be able to be his people. 
I desire mercy, not sacrifice, Matthew writes in 12, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is all about God's peace here, is demonstrating mercy to a people that normally would not have mercy. Pastor Ali, what does it mean? What's the difference between the mercy and grace? Because I thought it was all about grace. It is. Those twin sisters, mercy and grace, they operate together. You have to have mercy first, and then you have grace. The mercy says that God could judge you right now. Every single one of us right now, without God's mercy, we would stand judged. That's the end of the story. But because, because he is a God of compassion, because he's the Heset God, the compassionate, the kind God, there's mercy. We've been rescued from judgment by God's mercy. Grace is anything and everything we receive beyond that mercy. So after we have mercy, then we have grace, and those twin sisters walk hand in hand together under the umbrella of God's love for us. That's what it's about. Mercy is God not punishing us as our sins deserve. Grace is God's blessing in spite of the fact that we do not deserve it. Let me say that again. Mercy is God not punishing us as our sins deserve. And grace is God's blessing upon us despite the fact that we do not deserve it. You get that? Mercy comes first. God could judge first. But he says, oh, wait a minute. I'm going to allow my mercy to come in. Why? Because every since back in the Old Testament, it was prefigured already with the priest going into the Holy of Holies and having the Ark of the Covenant set up and those cherubim with the wings touching over the seat, the, the mercy seat. What God was saying and teaching through all that, that stuff was basically that there is mercy because he's, he's hoovering over that seat. He's, he, he says, I will meet you there with mercy. He's showing us something about his character. His nature. He's a God that's a merciful God. He is compassionate. Why can't we be the same way? He has enabled us to be people of mercy because he is that way. But some people don't deserve mercy, Pastor Ali. Well, some people you would be just in the same place as the people that didn't think the Ninevites were worth it. You see, the problem with Jonah is Jonah wanted to judge, and he was not the judge. See, oftentimes we get into a place where we want to make the call as though we are God, and God is saying, no, because if you're going to judge, judge righteously. You can't judge righteously. Don't judge. Our response when God marries the mercy and the grace together, our response is simply gratitude or thanksgiving. We praise God. We give thanks to God. Why? Because he has already done it. We don't have to do anything. We just have to accept it. Can I meddle a little bit? I'm going to do it anyway. The problem sometimes with us is we, 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 we have in our minds that, you know, I need to do something because what God has done doesn't seem to cut it. It's not quite enough. 
And so I got to work my way. I mentioned this last Sunday. I got to work my way into it. I'm going to keep mentioning this, by the way, because I see this as kind of an egregious thing in, 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 in our culture, in American culture. We want to work our way into the kingdom. And God is saying, there's no working your way into the kingdom. You can't be good enough. You can't give enough money to the church. You can't serve enough. You can't, you can't, you have to simply accept it because for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that doesn't even belong to you. It is the gift of God. Never should you boast. Why? Because God has done it all. God has provided. At best, our response is simply say, thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Jesus has paid the price. He's paid it all for us. I want, to, I want to say something about this a little bit because I, I think that, I think that, let me, let me do this. When you talk about, Paul talks about being a vessel of mercy. There's something about us, there's something about us that when we allow God to be God in us, when we allow God to do what he's going to do through us, there's something about what happens to those around us. When we demonstrate a spirit of mercy, when we demonstrate a spirit of compassion, when we demonstrate a spirit of forgiveness, there's something about the reciprocating effect. It tends to come back to us every single time. When we are hard-nosed and we want to judge and we want to exclude and create this thing as though it belongs to us only, it, it goes against the grain of everything that God is trying to do in his overarching plan. God's plan is said, it basically says, I am on a salvation mission. I am going to redeem folks. And then after I redeem folks through salvation in Christ Jesus, then I'm going to restore and the end of the story is restoration. If you go to the end of the story, you, God is restoring. In Revelation, the new Jerusalem, that's a restoration thing. God is restoring. It started in the garden, and it ends at Revelation. And God is working to recreate and restore. But we are part of that story. What God is doing, he said, I, I, I want you to be part of my story because in be, being part of my plan, you are the people who are what? Ambassadors of restoration or ambassadors of reconciliation. You are disciples. You are those that are tasked with going out to make others like you because Christ in you, the hope of glory, needs to be replicated. But that portends that you are indwelt by his spirit and that you have submitted to his will and that you desire to follow in his steps. I'm not talking about naming yourself as a Christian. I'm, 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 I'm talking about living it where it's in you. And I'm suggesting that if it's real in you, if he is real in you, then there is no other option in terms of whether I want to be merciful or compassionate or loving. You don't have that option, really. You are that way because God has created you that way. We struggle because we have the Jonah syndrome because we, we, we got the call, but we want to go in the opposite direction. 
Some of us are running from God. I said it before. I'll say it again before the series is up. Some of us are running from God. We know what we ought to do. And we are running. And we think we got a tailwind and we're running nowhere fast. And it's just a matter of time before God does what stops us in our tracks. And it may be through some calamity or some distress or some crisis or something, but you will, God will get your attention. Does it mean he doesn't love you? No. He loves you. While you're going through that crisis and that calamity, he's still loving you. Does it mean he's being merciless? No, he's still extending mercy because guess what? He could let you crash and burn. But because he cares so much for you and I, he keeps coming back. Let's try it again. Somebody said he's the second chance God. I like that. I know I needed a second chance. I'm glad he's the second chance God. If he was, a, if he was not the second chance God, I wouldn't be standing here today. But because he's the second chance God, I stand here only by his mercy and grace. So what does it mean to be a vessel of mercy. There's five pieces here that I think you should take with you. I started all of them with R's. I don't know why I like R's, but R's seem like they just seem to work for me. I don't know. Recall, re-examine, repent, reach out, and remember. Recall, first of all, what God has done for you. That's the first step. What has God done for you? You see, I, I suspect that a lot of us have not even considered the fact that, you know what, God, God has already done some great things in my life. Hear the words of Paul in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. See, some of us have forgotten that God has already redeemed us, has already forgiven us, has already given forbearance, has already given us mercy. And we've forgotten. And so what we've done is we've gone out and we've decided to, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to kind of... I'm going to kind of elicit some sort of response to get what I need to get from this person because they have already fallen short, and so I'm going to make them pay, and we have the make-them-pay attitude. And if God used the same spirit in dealing with us the way we deal with others, we would be paying big time. In other words, if God did not demonstrate at least some level of forgiveness for us, where would we be today? I know where I would be. I know where I would be. And it wouldn't be in the church. Number two, re-examine the judgmental spirit. Re-examine that judgmental spirit. Perhaps, just perhaps, that that spirit of being quick to write someone off. We have folks that will write you off in a minute. Why? Because somebody trespasses against us, somebody does something that we don't like, somebody acts in a way that we, we don't feel is proper, and so we write them off. 
Maybe somebody did something to you years ago and you're still carrying that on your back. You're still making a judgment statement against them because you have refused to acknowledge the fact that God has already blessed you. He's already re relieved you. And so effectively what we've done is we've imprisoned ourselves in this place of unforgiveness. We need to re-examine that. Think about it. Re-examine that judgmental spirit. This is a big one because in this chapter 2, the key part of this chapter is repentance. These folks who did not know God, the Ninevites, when they heard the message from Jonah, he didn't want to preach it. So he just went through the town and he had, oh yeah, 40 days you got. And they were, oh, oh, 40 days. And that would remind them of Noah in 40 days. That was significant. Oh, wow, 40 days, is, that's a bad thing. 40 days of wandering in, in, in a desert. Oh, 40 days. Oh, this is bad. 40 days. And so that message was just strong enough for them to do what? Turn around. That's exactly what repentance is. You're going in one direction, you've got your mind made up, this is the way it is, this way, and then you come to a revelation, and then you say, uh-oh, it's an aha moment. You turn around, you change your mind, you go the other way. That's repentance in a very simplified way. You change the way you have been thinking about life and about God. and about You repent. You change the way you think about your own sin. You repent. Pastor Scott and I were talking the other day, and I said some of the problems with uh, churches, uh, folk churches all throughout this country, the big, real serious problem with a lot of us is we don't think our stuff stinks. <laughs> I can't put it any plainer than that. You know, I was trying to figure out a way to dress it up a little bit, make it sound, but, but really, we, we don't. We don't understand that sin is egregious. It's a horrible place. It's a terrible thing. All of us are sinners, for all have sinned, uh, Paul says, and falling short of the glory of God. There is not one of us that's right, not one of us that seeks to do right. There's not even one. God says we've all dropped the ball. We've all missed it. That's the first place when you recognize that, God, I can't do enough to, I can't make myself right enough. My righteousness, as Isaiah the prophet would say, your righteousness is as filthy rags. You can't do it right. You can't get it right. I look at my own self, and I say, even at my best efforts, it comes out kind of weird and messed up. And I'm going, wow, gosh, now I know sin is real. So being able to recognize that, yes, yes, I'm a sinner. It's not a bad thing. I remember I was marrying a couple once, and I opened up with saying, as they were standing there, I said, face each other. They turned, they were looking at me because they were going, where, where is he going with this? I said, you are looking at one of the biggest sinners around. And their eyes got that big. I said, but that's okay. Because you're in good company. We're all sinners. I'm Jesus. All of us need Christ. All of us need Jesus Christ. Why? Why do we need him? Well, because his righteousness is perfect. He did not sin. He was sinless. 
And so when, when that time comes, when, when we stand before God, whenever that is, he's not, we're not standing before God in our own righteousness, but we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's what allows us to be able to stand there with full, full authority. Why? Not because we're good two sh- goody two-shoes and we had it all together, we went to GRS, we did serve, we did all this great stuff. No, because we are people that are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So that third one was repent. I like the way, the best description of repent that I, I, I think is so right on point is uh, David's psalm. <clears throat> you know the one I'm going to, David's psalm, the, the 51st psalm, where David cries out to God after he realizes that uh, well, after Nathan busted him, basically, because it, it told him that, hey, yeah, you know, you, you, you've done this thing. You're the one who's done this thing. His, his, his dalliance with uh, Bathsheba. And then to add injury to insult, they end up killing the husband and all this kind of stuff. But he cries out to God, hear his heart now. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, Psalm 51, blot out all my transgressions. You hear that? This is, this is David. This is the one that, 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 that God says, hey, he's, he's one of mine. But he dropped the ball. And he cries out to God, have mercy, O God. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Is it possible that maybe we might have to have a Psalm 51 conversation with God, some of us. Maybe part of that repent means that we, we, we need to first come clean. Before we can make the turn and go the other way, we need to acknowledge where we're at. Number four, reach out and reconcile, especially with those whom we struggle Reach out and reconcile. Some of us are walking around mad at folks that, that 10, 15 years have gone by and we're still walking around carrying that stuff. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Trust that God is bigger than, than any issue that you could ever deal with. Let it go. Trust that the one who has compassion on you, who has demonstrated mercy in your life, is the same one who is able to deal with whatever that is issue. Pray. I challenge you. I dare you. Pray and ask God to give you a spirit of reconciliation and go to that person under the power of the Holy Spirit. I challenge you to let God speak through you, his grace through you, his mercy through you as you encounter that person. Well, you don't know that person, Pastor. You don't know. You know, there are some bad things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. But I know sin. And I know that my book says that all have sinned. So not one of us can stand clear and say that we've got it together. So 
you know, that's, that's, that's on you. Are you still with me? Say amen. You sure or are you just making me feel good thinking that? Look, number five, remember who you are representing. To be a vessel of mercy, you have to realize that you are representing the one who demonstrated who is the epitome, who is the very essence of mercy. It's that one you're representing. Remember who you are representing. You're representing Christ. Now, I got to say this because at the end of the text, it says God relented. God changed his mind. He didn't bring on the disaster. And so next Sunday, we'll get into the after effect of that as Jonah goes off kind of with his face all long and everything and mad because God relented. Somebody is probably saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know that somewhere in the Bible it says that God is changeless. What about that? Looked like to me God changed. Oh, you're talking about, and we're not going to get into a long, drawn-out thing about it, but you're talking about the immutability of God, that he is the changeless one. Yes, you're right. God does not change. But wait a minute, it says right here that he changed, he relented. What's up with that? His nature, his character, as sovereign God of the creation, his character, his nature is changeless. He's the same God with character and nature. He is that God. He does not change his nature or character. He is true to his word. That's what immutability is about. If you want to impress somebody, you can say, oh, oh, the immutable attributes of God. Let me close with this. Some of you may be having problems with this whole fish story. Well, it's that fish story, and I'm, I'm still stuck past all the about the part about him being swallowed and, and surviving and, and for three days, and how did he breathe and all that kind of stuff. You're still stuck there. I want to remind you about something so you're not stuck. He is the God, the sovereign God, the same God who spoke in the very beginning in this world before it existed. He is the same God who spoke to dust and breathed on it and it became a living being. He's the same God who parted the Red Sea and allowed the children of Israel, the, the Israelites, to get through. He's the same God. The same God who spoke. Let there be light. In the beginning, and there was light. He's the same God that closed the mouth of the lion. And Daniel was able to sit there with the lion and not be hurt. He's the same God that when the three Hebrew boys refused to bow down, he's the same God that protected them from the fiery furnace. He's the same God, the same God 
who in the New Testament says that here's water when they were running out of wine and he turned the water into wine. That God who turned water into wine. He's the same God that made that lame person speak. The same God that made the blind person see. The same God who's encountered an apostle later on to be an apostle, the Saul on the road to Damascus, the same God who blinded him and then brought him and converted him, the same God, the same God who later on says, it's finished when they nailed him to the cross. The same God got up from the cross, the grave, and walked on. The same God who gave us salvation. He's the same God who will return one day. He's the same God that's about mercy in spite of us. That God. So if you're having a problem with the fish story, remember, it's the same God. Not a different God, but the same God who says, I've forgiven them. I've accepted them and I am sovereign and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy because I am God the writer in Hebrew says this since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of God let us hold fast to our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Father, we thank you so much for all that you continue to do, for being the same God that never fails us. In spite of us, God, you continue to show up in ways that just blow us away. And we thank you for this story with Jonah. And we thank you, God, that you are God who chooses mercy as you decide because you do not change. You're the same in character. You're the one who is the almighty, the compassionate, the everlasting one, the one who knows, the one who sees. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.